So I'm recording this podcast on a Monday night, about 24 hours after learning of the passing of my colleague and friend, ESPN's Pedro Gomez. And here's what, in the aftermath of the awful news, struck me. Of the dozens upon dozens of odes I read from journalists, almost none involved Pedro's writing, reporting, or on-air skills. And to be clear, he was a tremendous talent. But what people discussed was his kindness, his empathy, his decency, his warmth, his big heart. I really got to know Pedro in the early 2000s when I was working on a Barry Bonds biography and Pedro's job was to report daily on the mercurial giant slugger for ESPN. And it was just amazing. Bonds would treat Pedro like dog shit and Pedro would smile and come back the next day for more poor treatment. And then the next day and the next day. Always with a pep in his step. Always with the attitude that today would be the day when something cool or unique or unforeseen would happen. The man was simply a bundle of positivity. And while it's probably nice to have people raving about your masterful leads or your interviewing techniques, I'd much prefer to be remembered as we do Pedro Gomez as an outstanding human being. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Jay Horowitz, who for 34 years served as a New York Mets head of public relations and is the author of a terrific book, Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. This is episode number 194. Let's sing some yang. All right, well, Jay. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. I my, my honor to be with you, Jeff. You're an old friend. Thank you for having oh, me. Oh, I appreciate it. And I'm going to tell you something funny. I always like digging and finding early stuff about someone. Okay. Right. So I went through the old newspaper archives here. The Herald News, Passaic, New Jersey, September 12th, 1958. Open house to follow Horowitz Bar Mitzvah. That's a headline. Son of Mr. and Mrs. Milton Horowitz, 14 Grant Avenue, Clifton. Yeah. Will be inducted as Bar Mitzvah at 9 a.m. tomorrow at the Clifton Jewish Center. Rabbi Eugene Markovitz will conduct the service, and Cantor Bernard Matlin will, will chant. Jay will receive the traditional Bible gift from Michael Feltman on behalf of the men's club. A kiddush reception will follow at the center. Open house for the families and guests will be held at the Horowitz home. Jay, how was your bar mitzvah? I screwed it up, to be honest with you, Jeff. I, uh, two, two restored. I, I was a bad student in the Hebrew school. I memorized my Haftorah, and I forgot it half, halfway through, and I had a moment where I did a really bad job. Let me tell you one quick Rabbi Markowitz story. This was uh, game, uh, before game six of the 86 World Series. It was a, uh, it was a Sunday night. Uh, it was Saturday night. It was Young Kippur Eve. So I went over to the Clifton Jewish and I said, Rabbi, I need a favor. It's Young Kippur tomorrow night. And it's a game in the World Series. I'm going to work. Could you give me any dispensation? And he laughed and he said, Jay, I can't, but I understand what you're doing. So the next day, you know, the game was right now. So the rabbi exerted his. I still went to work, but the rabbi, Mark, which bless his soul, got the game right now for me. That's amazing. He used his powers. I did. I, I was never going to go into. I was a bad uh, religious student. Like I really butched up the whole half Torah. Thirty-eight lines. I screwed it up on the fourth line. Very upsetting. So you know, you're here in a way because you have a, a book that came out somewhat recently, Mister Met, how a sports mad kid from Jersey became like family right. to generations of big leaguers. But to me, honestly, I wanted you here because I freaking I just love everything about sort of what you symbolize to me, which is a very authentic very traditional, 
very reliable and very relatable approach to sports public relations. And you come from an era when newspapers mattered and you would walk into a clubhouse and the ball players would actually be reading the newspapers. Do baseball players still care about what's written about them? They do. You know, I haven't been in a locker room about two years since I switched jobs and I had an alumni. But now they read on the on their phones, their iPhones, the internet. They do read. I remember, you know, more more than once somebody would come to me and say, Hey, why did this guy write this about me? And next time he's in the locker room, I want to have a confrontation with him. Or I said, Listen, if you want to do that, make sure I'm there. And that's what I always try to one, one thing, if I had any success, Jeff, in my years in the locker room, is letting these guys know that I cared, that I wasn't always asking them to do something for me. And they always try to treat the 25th guy like the number one guy in the team. And I, you know, be the PR guy is really a hard job. You have three masters. You have the ownership, the players, and the media. The ownership think you cater to the other two. The players think you cater to the media, and the media think you cater to the players. I always walked like you have to be credible. Let them know you're 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 not going to always ask for stuff, and you know they they do care because now it's not the newspapers, but everybody's got an iPhone. Everybody's got a you know a, a, a what do you call it? Those big devices that they have. You know, and, and they, they, they do care. They, you know, and they really do care. And in the last couple of years, even the younger guys would come over to me. Hey, why did this guy write this about me? And they definitely do follow the stuff. No question. It does seem like the level of confrontation. Like I only covered baseball for five years. I had the John Rocker thing. I had Will Clark go off on me. I had Kerry Wood go off on, like for different little moments where, where they'd right. be like, oh, you're that guy, blah, 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 blah. It feels like the temperature over the years has dropped a little bit as far as the combativeness, or, or am I mis- am I imagining something? No, I, I, you know what it is? I think, you know, the, Lias, when I traveled in 18, there's less papers who traveled. Maybe there's a lot of personal relationships are gone from the older guys. You said more, you know, you know, we had 10, 12, 14 papers traveling on a regular basis, not anymore. Maybe there's less media around on a day-to-day basis, you know, and, and it's different kind of media, but I guess they don't, I agree, there's not as much back and forth as it used to be a couple of years ago, especially in the 80s for me, you know, when when it was some of my guys, Keith and Daryl and, and Doc had some troubles off the field, they would be, you know, we'd be trying to stir stuff up and I had a standard line, you know, I would ask the player to do it once, if they did it once and they come around a second time, they would just say, hey, I said this before, I don't want to do it again, and this is with let the player know, you like satisfying the media's request and let the player know that you were on your side. I wrote a book about the 86 Mets called The Bad Guys. Right. And um, which you were usually, usually helpful. And I, it's actually interesting. I was thinking the first time I really felt like I st- sort of knew you and got to know you was I called you because you wouldn't remember this. I called you because I was working on the book and you never know what reception you're going to get. And you said, why don't you come out to the stadium? We have some clips I can give you. And you sent me home with these duffel bags that I was literally nice. on the train platform of the 86. You gave me the binders to use from the 86 season, wow. all of them. It was ridiculously generous and kind. And it didn't come with any, well, you know, this book better be blank or this book better be. It was asked, I know what you're doing. You're a journalist. Here are the clips. Well, I just try to be fair to everybody, Jeff, you know. I know, but it, it, it matters. And, and one thing I wrote in that book, and I kind of wondered, thinking about this interview, if, if I was too harsh or is I said, when Gooden and Strawberry were coming along, I said the Mets, and probably, I guess, indirectly you in a sense, were sort of tried to serve as plexiglass shields, I think was the term I right. used. Uh, the guy from J. Mariotti, Jay called me a plexiglass shield. He, he was did. that fair? Was it in height? Yeah, true. Doesn't, no, yeah. It, was, it was absolutely fair. Uh, when when Daryl came up in the spring of 83, 
I probably made one of my probably worst mistakes in PR. I said yes to everything. If you were a paper from the Guacamole Times and I'm Marotex, I said yes. And it got to the point where the pressure was really too much on him. The Dow rebound and got the rookie of the year. So the next year when Dwight came up, I called my friend Steve Brenner, who was the uh, PR guy with the Dodgers. I, I said, what did you do with Vanza Whale at that time? He said he had a, a set up a system that we speak the day he started and one day after he started, another day, and no matter who came, the intermediate days was no, he was 19 years old, we're protecting him. There's one time Jake came in, it was his big trade, and he wasn't on one of the assigned days. I told him he couldn't do it. So we had a little yelling match back and forth. And, you know, in that time, you know, we were still on the verge of becoming a good team. And I was, I thought it was my job to protect a 19 year old kid who, who had spent the year before in Lynchburg, Virginia. So I did make some enemies and, you know, you know, it was a great counsel to Mel Stoudemire, my rest of soul. I used to go out to dinner with him. He said, Jay, you're doing the right thing. You got to take the bullets sometimes for the guys and they'll, they'll know and then anywhere I have their backs. And that's what we did. Yeah. I made a, a lot of, like if not enemies, but I, I stood fast. I said, you're not here. And we got to worry out when the days had to be, but if it came on a day, you couldn't, couldn't speak to him. I said, no, you can't speak to him. And so a lot of guys went away unhappy. Do you feel like, the Mets could have handled, in hindsight, Gooden and Strawberry better? Or was it just a circumstance of two young guys being thrown into New York and it just was going to be a tough circumstance no matter what? I, I don't know. I mean, that's just a guy. You know, went to this day, 30 plus years later, I don't know what the answer is, but we, you know, I mean, they were just became the focal point of everything. The predator, the win, you had the K quarter in left field, you know, became to a game in the minds brought a strawberry, got in for nothing. Maybe it was just too much in retrospect that we had curtailed some of the outside stuff, but I don't know. You know, Jeff, I really truly don't know what the answer is, but it, it just have a, uh, have a good flip side. You know, Daryl, he's been sober the last 20 years. He's become, a, he's a minister. He and his wife travel around the country uh, speaking about the evils of drugs. Dwight does a lot of work with a hospital here in in, uh, in Hackensack going to speak to uh, cancer kids. He speaks to high school. So, yeah, maybe they could have been the Hall of Fame. But I think what makes me good as a friend, I still have good contact with them. They turn your life around and you're doing some good stuff in the community. But I did answer your question. I don't know. During your career, if a reporter wrote something that you felt was unfair, or a columnist wrote something that you thought was unfair to a player. Did you feel it was part of your job to go up to them and say, blah, 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 blah? Or once it hit the print, do you just back off and walk off? I, I try to do it in a way, I've done it more than once, not to do it in front of the locker room, you know, not to create a, 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 an audience, you know, not to, I know, in the locker room, it's the players' locker room. So if I was going to get into an argument with a, with a reporter, the players are going to back me up no matter what it is. So I try to get them on the side. And there was one particular writer, uh, you remember the player Ryan Church? Of course. Uh, yeah, so Ryan Church, uh, we, he had a concussion, and we checked with our doctor. He traveled across to San Diego. We actually had a concussion. And this one particular writer wrote a really, really nasty, nasty article how the Mets didn't check. They didn't want to check it, and he met with medical people. And I did get into a discussion with him in front of Ryan's lock, which I felt bad for. But I, I tried to do it in a way to get him on the side, get him in the corner dugout to point something out and not to make it to embarrass the writer. But, you know, and I, I would go back to the play later. Hey, I took care of it. I spoke to the guy. Can you hold grudges in your job? What I mean is if you feel like a reporter is being routinely unfair to the Mets or to a player, does it impact the way you receive future requests from that reporter? I don't think I've done that before. I'm, I'm not a 
of an eventual person, you know, Jeff, like, you might have, you know, we've had some stuff going on, might have, but not for any length of time. I try to be professional about it. You know, unfortunately, during my career with the Mets, there were more bad years and good years. And I always try to approach my job to be a pro about it, not to shirk my duty because we're in last place or we had a couple of hundred lost seasons. And but I try to do my job professionally and, you know, maybe for a day or so, but I never denied a guy request to speak to a player because something wrote was written. Sometimes I had to explain to the player why I couldn't do that, why you had to let the guy in the locker room, why you couldn't bar him. And, you know, if you bar him, it would be worse than not let him in. So, you know, once you get back to what I said, I think why I was able to exist for so long, I think the guys trusted me. I never wanted to be a suit. I never wanted to be a front office guy walking around in the locker room. And that's, and for me, the guys have to know that you're on your side. And it, it, you, sometimes you're going to have to say from hard love. But I think by and large, the players knew that I was on their side. So you arrived in 1980. You came from Fairleigh Dickinson. The Mets were terrible. They were 67 and 95 in 1980, kind of building around Lee Mazzilli to a certain degree. And right. It's a pretty bare cupboard. I love, and I've talked to you about this before, actually, for a story I did about you for the Wall Street Journal years ago. You kind of brought a creativity to the job because you needed creativity because there wasn't that really that much to talk about at this point. How does one promote a team that's not very good? Well, my my history, I think you know part of my history with Freely Dickinson, why I really got the Mets job. We had a, a one-armed fencer, 43-year-old priest to play hockey, a 43-year-old freshman football player, and Aaron was really goalie on the same team. A baseball player got hit by a pitch 128 times and a wrestler with six kids. So, and that's the reason why I got the job in 1980. The Mets weren't very good. And he wanted kind of this offbeat PR guy. And normally he's more offbeat than I was. So I interviewed with Frank Cash and I got the job. You spilled orange juice on his suit? Well, no. He's sitting in the old Edgewater Beach Hotel. his little white tennis shorts. And I was so nervous. I was late for the interview. I knocked the whole damn thing over in his lap. Then he, um, you know, he asked me two questions. He said, okay, that's it. And I went home. I called my mom. I said, mom, there's no way I got the job. But so going back to your question, so I try to look for the humorous, uh, the human interest story. One, my first story I did with Lee Mazzilli before he became a baseball player won eight national speed skating titles. Doug Flynn sang with the Oak Ridge Boys at a, at, at a, um, in a, a nightclub in Manhattan. Craig Swan was a trainer on the side. Joel Youngblood used to hunt deer with bow and arrows. I tried to look for the offbeat stuff, the stuff that even if you're 0 and 40, it wouldn't make any difference. It would be interesting to the, to the team. You know, uh, Chuck Cotty, one of our coaches at, at that time, had a new way of throwing his voice. When he walked through an airport, he would make it, make people think they dropped something, people would drop something. So I wrote a story about that. I mean, then it really didn't change until really May 6, 1983, when Daryl came up. And then Daryl was followed by Keith. And then really, for me, the landmark of why we turned it around was Davey Johnson after the 83 World Series. Davey had a kind of brashness and openness about him. His, his, his remarks at the press conference were, why did it take you so long to hire, hire me, guys? I'm the guy to turn this thing around. And he did. And we won from 84 to 90. We really turned around and, and owned New York City. So does your approach to your job in PR, when you start having a good product, do you stop looking for the quirky stories? I never stopped looking for the quirky stories, uh, you know, Je Jeff. I really haven't, but it, you don't have to go. You know, making eighty-four calls a day. Like uh, we had a pitcher 
uh, who we, we, we traded for Keith's uh, Hernandez, Rick Ownby, he, he used to be able to catch a Frisbee with his teeth. And I did some other stories in the 80s. I, I, you know, I try to do is concentrate on charity part of stuff. Like, uh, you know, if you have a good team, the writers and columns are more attuned to doing off-the-field charity work or, or if somebody has an illness in the family. I just try to concentrate on kind of off-the-field stuff. Like, yeah, I know my, my situation made me more inclined to do that. You know, I was born blind in my right eye. I had glaucoma. Uh, when I was 13, I got a glass eye put in, put in, and I got ridiculed a lot as a kid, the whole thing. And so I, I, it made me look for those kind of stories, you know, look for those, you know, feel good kind of stories or people doing charities or, you know, going to Doc and Daryl going to hospitals and, you know, Mookie going to hospitals and all that. And I think my background, because of my personal situation, make me more inclined to look for the those kind of stories. That's what I try to do for, you know, most of my career with the Mets. I, I had no idea about the glass eye until your book came out. Why did you decide after all these years of just never mentioning it to mention it in a book? Well, the thing is, this was my 40th year. Somebody from uh, one of the local papers was writing a story on me. And a guy said to me, uh, I noticed you watch all the games with binoculars. You know, and I do. And I said, you know what? Let me just tell him the truth. He said, hey, I have one eye. I can't see distances. And then after uh, I, I did the thing, I said, you know, and I had a, somebody asked me about a book. He said, maybe I could help some kid born with a disability, born with this. That you don't have to be born 100% perfect to make a career for yourself. That was it. Jeff, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. And maybe if somebody reads it and, and uh, so I want to I put it up front and center in the first chapter, then maybe give somebody encouragement that, you know, hey, you don't have to be perfect to get ahead in this life. I had a nice career for myself, 40 years with one eye and, you know, and people can be cruel, kids can be cruel. I mean, I had, you know, they, they, they if you look at me, you knew something was wrong. They would ridicule me, make fun of me. And, and, and finally sports helped me get friends. I couldn't play sports. I wasn't very good. I became a manager. My senior year in high school, I had more stripes on my, on my sweater than the starting quarterback. I remember what it did. Chile said, who the hell is that guy? I never seen him play any team. He's got nine stripes on it. I managed basketball, football, track, soccer, cross country, just to stay involved with sports. Here you are, you're this kid and you're involved as a manager and you're made fun a lot and you have, obviously you have eye issues and, and et cetera, et cetera. And you enter this world of professional sports, which I mean, every time I walked in a clubhouse, most times I always felt a little intimidated because it always felt like it was the cool kids and the not cool kids. You know, there's that certain thing. If you right, know, I hear you, I hear you. And you sort of thrust yourself into that for a career. It's a real interesting thing because you're not a player. And I wonder, like, and, and players through your years, you write about this. Players kind of made you the butt of jokes in a, in a positive, good way a lot. But they did, like, was going into this profession in a way to combat exactly what you experienced growing up? Yeah, I, I wanted. I, I was scared to, to do it when I first started, you know. And but I figured, you know, uh, but by the time I got, I had worked as a, in the SID at Fairly Dickinson. I was about 33, 34 years old, and I had enough confidence in myself at that point. Tell you what, Jeff, the guy I owe so much credit to is Joe Torrey. Joe was my first manager. He took me under his wing, and he mentioned Arthur Richards' name before. Arthur was the traveling secretary. Uh, and then, and they introduced me to all their friends, to George Brett, Reggie Jackson, Pete Rose, you name it. He made me, he introduced me to players. It was always Joe's mantra was, he had kids just out of college, take care of them, guys. 
and with guys like Doug and and Pat Zachary and, and Craig Swan and John Stearns who really you know made it easy for me and they made me they they made me one of the guys and they did stuff when I asked and they mentioned Mazzilli too but I just I just said let me you know I'm I at that point I I was always able like to say to laugh at myself Johnny Franco always told me he said Jay if the guys don't like you they won't screw with you and you got to understand what stays on and what goes on in the locker room stays in the locker room and I was always never afraid to be a butt of a joke and I always took it a part of caring and I was accepted by them and I was always willing to laugh at myself I think one thing that's interesting you may totally disagree in a weird way being having a career in professional sports as a player has its own heavy amounts of insecurities there's always someone coming to take your job you're getting older you you know you there's a it's a quick train to the minor leagues for most of these guys or getting really like I especially see it. I've written a lot about the NFL and a lot of NFL guys. They're always nervous because there's always someone, someone coming along and there's always a higher kind. Con- and I just think these guys aren't as secure as we always think. And maybe in a way you're a sort of, you're there every year and you're a rock of stability. And maybe they take to you because you, you are this presence. That's always a part of the Mets. Maybe they don't see you at all as an outcast. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you're actually as the title of your book is Mr. Met. In my time with the Mets, I think there were 13 or 14 PR guys with the Yankees, you know, and I, you know, going back to Irv Kays and Ken Nigro and all these other guys. And I, I just, you know, they let me do my job and I never really felt that if it was one bad story, I was going to get fired. And I just, you know, I just did my job, good, bad, and indifferent. I think the ownership knew I was loyal to them, and you know, and I had a good relationship with the players. I, I never really thought about getting fired, to be honest with you. But I mean, maybe sometimes I should have gotten fired. But, but I mean, they they kind of let me do my job in uh, through the years. So I'm, I'm actually I have a bunch of different random things I want to ask you about. Sure. When you come along, 1980, you join the Mets. Dick Young is sort of. You know, he's a huge name in New York and the Daily News, and he's this legendary columnist and this terrifying columnist to a lot of people. And you're this sort of newbie in New York. Did Dick, did Dick Young scare the shit out of you? We know why he didn't scare the shit. Do you remember Jack Lang? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Jack Lang was the beat writer. Jack was many rest in peace. He took me again. He, I was very fortunate to have people who cared about me. And I'm coming from college. Jack introduced me to Dick. And he, Jack said, "Your my advice to you is ask him stuff, pick his brain. If you want to do something, do a press conference or time. Ask him to let him know you value his opinion. So when we did things, uh, you know, a press conference, a time or a day, when we used to go to the winter meetings. I say, Dick, what do you like to eat? What would you like to eat? We'd do some stuff. So Jack always said, listen, he can be crusty, but he's a good guy. And just let him know that. You know, you you value his opinion, which of course I did. Right, would go out of my way to ask Dick stuff about, hey, should they do this? Should they do that? What do you think about a problem lock? And what would you do if you were me? And thanks to Jack, he kind of pointed me in the right direction. And you know, the, the years I I, which I went to dinner once or twice, and he was very kind to me. He really was. But that's because Jack told me how to make the proper entree to him. 1986, game six of the World Series. You're sitting there, you're working. This is your team, your life. The Mets are finally, it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen because there are two outs and the Red Sox are winning. At that moment, two outs, Red Sox winning, game six. Are you resigned to the fact that the Mets are not going to win the World Series? I was sitting in Davey Johnson's office with uh, Daryl Johnson and Keith Hernandez, and I was petrified. At that time, 
the league hated us. We were arrogant. We got to fights. We, you know, we, 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 we were blustery and all the other teams would, would thank for us to lose. I would try to figure myself, how am I going to analyze? We had won 114 games, a heavy favorite to win everything. And we're going to lose. I mean, who is going to do the interviews? And this guy's going to be around. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the, uh, you know, Gary, Gary gets hit, Kevin Mitchell, Ray Knight, the Mookie miracle. And we come back and win. I was, uh, you know, it was something about that team. There's so many different personalities. I, my biggest fear, I, again, I was trying to do my job at that time. If we did lose, I'm sure the guy's going to be mad. How are we going to make sure that they don't run out of the locker room? That's what I was really concerned with at that point, it's not to be embarrassed as a team and, you know, to make sure the guys were there. And I know they would have been there. We didn't win. But that was why I was really concerned and petrified that, you know, after all the – PR and 116 wins and blah, 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 blah. We were going to lose like that at home, but thankfully we didn't. I still have the ring. That's really interesting. Like, do you, um, when you are working a game, are you 98% almost in a way blinders on? I'm doing my job. I'm doing my job. I'm doing my job. Win and loss. Isn't the thing it's doing my job, getting the right play. Are you not emotionally into the game? Who wrote the book? There's no cheering in the press box. Yeah. Uh, Jerome Holtzman. I always try never to let my emotions go out. I did um, during um, yeah. Do you did you ever deal with my latest? This I have a chapter in the book. You know Shannon Ford. Did you ever deal with her? Only a little bit with the eighty. Yeah, great woman. So this is um, uh, me the nine twenty one oh one game against the uh, against the Braves. You know Mike comes up and Shannon would sit next to me and you know she would tap me in the leg. And when Mike hit the home run, we didn't, neither of us, we just, you know, silently cheered. Like I tapped her in the shoulder. She tapped me in the shoulder. I never, I didn't want anybody to come and see us cheering in the press or yelling. And when, when I got down to the locker room, I used to have a routine. I would be down in the locker room in the eighth inning to prepare for the postgame interviews. So there I could yet watch the TV, yell and scream. Remember in, in game six of the 86 series against Houston, I sat in the same place in the locker room for about eight innings. And I was dying. I didn't move. I was dying. I just kept it all in. Yeah, yeah you, you, you got to help root. You know, you're with these guys from February to, to October. And more of you, like your second family, and you wouldn't even lose it in grain. I, I tried always not to be let it go outwardly and not to embarrass the club or myself. I cover, I've probably covered 2,000 Major League Baseball games. And I would say my two favorite moments as a journalist, it was the Robin Ventura walk-off single, Grand Slam. Right, right, right. And I'm not talking about – it wasn't, I wasn't watching as a Met fan or a Yankee fan or anything. Just the magic of that moment and everything about it. And then the other one – was that Mike Piazza game after 9-11? But it wasn't the home run. It was Liza Minnelli singing New York, New York and leading like a conga line of officers. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. And she kissed Jay Payton after she sang, you know. And what I was most proud of in that game, after the game was over, uh, all the guys came out in the locker in a dugout and signed autographs for the uh, for the policeman and fireman kid. You know what, Jeff? Everybody says to me, what's the highlight of your career? And they say, I mean, it's 86. To me, it was how the team re reacted uh, after 9-11. I mean, we did so much stuff in the community. You know, guys like Lyer and Franco, Ventura, Zio, uh, Vance Wilson, Armando. 
And we went down to ground zero eight, ten times. We went out and cameras. We went to the firehouses, the police station. We worked with Tuesday's children. We took care of the kids who died on 9-11. That was what, you know, we, it's one thing, you know, get stuff in the papers. We, we made a great contribution to the, to the community. I can't forget what Bobby Valentine did then. He was, you know, above and beyond. One of his best friends was a jumper. And he dove headfirst into, you know, Chase Stadium was a recovery zone. We got all the equipment shipped downtown. So to me, that was the most gratifying part of my job with the Met. I'm looking forward next year, living to be well, you know, is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 game. The Yankees are playing the Mets at City Fields. So that should be a pretty emotional night for everybody, especially the people who were there in the beginning. Wait, this is a random, random question. I hated the depiction of Art Howe and Moneyball. I thought they made Art Howe look like an idiot. Yeah. And I thought Art Howe was a dignified, kind, decent, smart baseball man. He was your manager. Am I wrong on this? No, he was a great guy. And he, he had the patience of a saint. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I mean, talk about managers the day I remember packing up his office when he left and I was really in tears. And because he was a decent guy and, you know, and he, he, he and it, did, it just didn't work out. But he, you know, he, I hated the movie. He hated the movie. You know, he, and he used to ride the bike every day. He didn't have a gut. He didn't have a stomach. He took care of himself. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it just didn't work out. But Art never ducked anything, always faced the music. And, you know, like the last part of his reign, he knew he was getting far. I think he, remember, he even announced he wasn't going to come back. And he managed the last two months. He was a really decent guy, very unfair depiction of him. I always thought it was funny, like off topic, how that movie and the book, it talked about Scott Hatterberg and like Jeremy Giambi and never really mentioned Zito Hudson Mulder. You know, no, like, <laughs> they never existed. It just didn't exist. Obviously, you were doing the PR for the Mets when a former pitcher, a late pitcher now, Anthony Young, lost 27 straight yeah. decisions. Um, and obviously, it was a story that I guess from our vantage point, media's vantage point, was almost in a way funny. Like it was kind of, but it's not funny, but it's funny that this guy keeps losing and keeps losing and keeps losing. When you're in the middle of that, and those Met teams are not very good, um, as a PR guy, how do you deal with the player? And how do you make it bring some, I don't know, levity or decency to a pretty crappy situation? I, I know this would be crazy to say. Anthony Young is a pretty good pitcher. You know, he passed away at age 50. He had brain cancer. He died a couple of years ago. And he, he got it. Anthony got it. He was He's a, a really good football player at the University of Houston. And he got about 15, 20 saves during that time period, you know. And he, he got it, you know. And he I said, Anthony, they're going to talk to you again. He never once rebuffed me. You know, at the end, when he broke the streak, we got him on the Tonight Show. Yeah, we, I didn't know that. On, yeah, we got him on the Tonight Show. And he, he, was, he was good about it. He knew it was, you know, we, we were a bad team at that time. A lot of time we would just lose games. Really, nothing to do with him. Didn't hit or it a one run game, but he he got the whole thing, and you know, and and, and it, you know, he got a lot of national notoriety because of it. And he, again, wind up on today's show. And before he passed away, he used to come to fantasy camp, uh, and he was one of the top popular guys. He, everybody used to ask about the streak, and he talked about it. Would you know? Uh, he easily talked about it. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine. And while we're bunkered inside because of the coronavirus, we're here talking about 503 Sports, King of the- Are you kidding me? What? Seriously, are you kidding me? I- I've been stuck inside for four days, eating moldy cold pizza and drinking watered down coffee. And everywhere I turn, you are standing there 
Just get out of my face, man. This sucks so badly. I can't even. So no 503 sports, Kings of the. Get out of my face. Was it was it hard for you? So 86, even 87, 88, like those are really lovable teams, I think, having written about them and, and just embraceable, really embraceable. And not that long after that, you end up having some teams. And I think it was Clappish who wrote the book, The Worst Team Money Could Buy. Right. Right. You know, the Vince Coleman's and the Eddie Murray's and Brett Saberhagen, they just brought in a lot of veterans, high priced veterans. And the team did seem very unlikable. And I wonder for you, from a PR standpoint, was it tough going from this utopia to a very high priced team that didn't do well and just wasn't didn't come off as particularly? It, it, it was hard, Jeff, but but I try again to do my job. And one time, uh, I, I broke up a fight in the locker between Bibi Clappish and uh, Bobby Bo. Yeah. When I think Bobby Bo says, I want to show you Bronx, my hometown, my way. And uh, But it was hard. And we had the firecrackers. We, and we had, uh, you know, the, the I remember one year, in 93, I think we lost 103 games, maybe. And then Fred Wilpon, how the post game, postseason mean, he said, guys, we got to clean this up. It's, one thing to lose on the field, but your the behavior off the field is disgraceful. It was hard. I mean, you know, I, I was uh, was uh, in, in in L.A. when uh, when Vince and uh, Bobby both they threw firecrackers in the in the parking lot. I was having to do with my late my late uncle Murray said, and someone in the police tracked me down some way in a restaurant. And we had to go deal with that. It was uh, it was different. It was different. Again, I try to be professional about it, make the players accountable, and uh, move on. But it was a different, it was a tough couple of years. Because you can't. Am I wrong? Like you come along in 1980, the Mets are young and sort of crappy, and you could be like, ah, we have a guy who blah 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 likes to dance, and we have this guy. But you can't. That doesn't work with a high priced veteran team of famous people, does it? No, especially with a lot of stuff is you could lose. We have a lot of the off the field stuff. It really compounds everything. And some of the stuff off the field wasn't great at all. You know, I mean, it wasn't great. Along those lines, but in a good way, like one of my favorite stories from 86 and all the guys involved with it laughed. And I kind of want to remember was uh, the bar Cooters in Houston, where yes. I think it was Tuffle, Darling. Oh, I, Aguilera, Aguilera, I think. Yeah. They basically got in a fight and the cops came and a couple of them got arrested. And I wonder, were you, were you like in your hotel sleeping and you got woken up? Like, what do you remember about that? Yeah. Arthur Richmond called me in the middle of the night. He said, we have some problems. We got to raise bail money. Some of the boys are in jail. And, yeah, and uh, so they got out of jail. And when they came back to the game the next day, some of them, forget who it was, they put like bar things around your lockers, like pinstripe thing. And I had to go back and forth a couple of times with Houston to be the chaperone to when they had court here. As I remember one time my lady and Clara said, Jay, I saw you on TV going to jail. What did you do? I said, no, and Clara, it wasn't me. I was there as a chaperone for the boys. We had some problems, but everything is good. You know, when, uh, you know, there was a, yeah, it was one of the, yeah, it was, it was a nightclub in Houston. And, uh, you know, Tim Tuffle was one of the most mind-minded guys we had on the team. And, you know, I you know, things got a little bit out of hand. Tim Tuffle getting in in that bar is as likely as like you know. It was his yeah. birthday? No, wasn't it the birth of his son? Am I wrong on that? Or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I mean, yeah. hindsight's funny, and they were able to laugh at it. Um, I'm not going to ask you to name names because I know you wouldn't. How do you deal in? How have you dealt in your career with assholes on the Mets? Like, let's say there's a player who's just a jerk. He's just not that likable, and he treats people badly, and blah blah. How do you deal with it from your vantage point? Just try, try to convince them that, you know, in, in this market, 
if you don't cooperate the media, it could be a hundred times worse. You know, I'm telling you, it's bad. You don't have to do it every day. If you're a part of a game, you know, uh, you, sh- you should be there. If you don't think it's right, you know, bad about you. And we had a, we had one pitcher, uh, a relief pitcher. He blew his first uh, five saves with the Mets, and the sixth game, uh, and he we hit in the locker room every time wasn't available. The sixth game, he got a win, and the writers didn't want to talk to him. I explained to him why. What, what happened? And I just try to, you know, my whole thing was to try and make the guys accountable. Again, I tried to be the buffer between the media and the players. And, you know, I felt if a guy was a part of a game and didn't cooperate, it was a reflection on my job and the organization. I just try to explain the facts of life to them that, you know, in this market, this is not Kansas City or Detroit or Seattle. It was one or two papers. And if you're going to be here for any length of time, you have to extend the olive branch. And, even I, even Dave Kingman, who didn't have a great reputation, stayed in my house for three weeks uh, when we first got him back in 1981 or 82. He didn't have a place to stay. Dave tried to make reparations. He had a press conference. He bought uh, gold pens for all the writers back then. I just tried to talk to them and explain to them the facts of life. That you, you might not like the media byplay, but you, you got to do it in this market. If you don't, you're going to be miserable. And I love that you just brought him up. Kingman has a definitely had a reputation as one of the yes. Least agreeable ball players of all time. Was he misunderstood, or is that somewhat fair? He he did like the back and forth, and I was always have to control him to to do an interview, or you know, even even Eddie Murray. Eddie didn't like talking about himself. I remember when he hit his four runs on run in Atlanta. I had to beg him to come out of the training to talk to the media. He just didn't like the yeah, Eddie was one of those guys. They never used up my. I never had to do twelve interviews. I, as long as I got him out there for the opportune times at key moments I was happy and just had to explain them and I'm hey guys I'm on your side if you don't come out you don't talk down the road it's not going to be good for you you know it's interesting I'm working on a book right now about Bo Jackson and Bo Jackson will be very surly and very tough with the media and the more I read about him and sort of research him he was a guy he was one of 10 kids he grew up dirt poor he literally didn't have running water in his house in Bessemer Alabama and I do think sometimes we place expectations on these guys that is a little unfair and unrealistic. Like he's a kid who grew up with a, with a horrible stutter. He was made fun of a lot as a kid. And it's kind of in a way you were, you know, like you made fun of a lot. You had to overcome that. Do you think sometimes when we judge these guys to be surly, we're just not understanding where the surliness comes from? Yeah, probably the writers, me, doesn't know, you know, all the backgrounds or, well, something could have happened in another team or in another city or, or, or in an article. And I, I think it wasn't the thing with Eddie Murray that, that somebody wrote something when he was in Baltimore and he never forgot about it. I don't remember who that was. But, yeah, I mean, sometimes, it's, you know, all the media doesn't know what makes these guys tick. You know, it could have a bad day. It could be coming from a divorce. One of the kids could be sick. I think there's a lot of things to consider, you know, no, no question about it. And my dad always used to say, um, you never know what's going on in someone's house. No question. No question about it. No question. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you one more thing about ballplayer. I actually printed this out. Tyler Kepner article from April 1st, 2001. A Cole, a top meth prospect, killed in a driving accident. And I remember this vividly when it happened. Brian Cole, a blossoming outfielder, who is one of the Mets' top right. prospects, was killed today while driving from Port St. Lucie, Florida, to his home in, in Mississippi. He was 22 Cole was driving his truck home today after the Mets minor leaguers left camp. Jay Horowitz, the Mets vice president for media relations, said a car swerved in front of Cole somewhere near the border of Florida and Alabama, and the vehicles collided. Um, you, there was a quote from you. It was a festive evening that turned into a tragic night. Guys were crying. Everyone was upset. 
Um, you've dealt with a lot of good baseball, a lot of bad baseball, you know, happy players, sad players, a 27 game losing streak, 86 world series. What is it like from a PR standpoint to deal with the death of a ball player? It's, it's awful. I mean, I, we were at a team dinner in Pittsburgh, as I remember correctly. And, uh, um, we just had a, you know, just kissed a whole pail over, over the thing. And, and we, you know, I'm, I'm, we're still in contact with his family. We, when we, we started a scholarship in his name in Mississippi, come the same hometown as old Ken Boyd. I forget Gulfport, Mississippi. It's just awful. He, Brian, do you remember there was an article in Sports Illustrated just recently? You know, I guess he played with CC Sabathia and some of all these great guys played. He would have been a superstar. You know, it just, uh, it, it's just, you know, it's just awful. I mean, it just, you know, I, I still get, hit. I still keep in contact with his brother and his mom and his mom and, it's just awful. A career, you know, just wiped out like that. But it's, uh, you know, death is just an awful thing. And it, just this year, I mean, current one, one of my closest friends, a security guard with the Mets, Sean Dean, he died of COVID uh, last Saturday, 52 years old, um, you know, two young kids. You know, it's just awful. I mean, it's just uh, the, all the stuff we want to kind of, you know, the, 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 the people involved, it's not just runs, hits, bump balls and, you know, strikes with like when Mel Stonemeyer died, I went out his funeral in, in, in Washington. So, I mean, too many people I know are dying now and all this stuff is gone. It's just, it's, uh, just it, it, it's not great right now in the world, but hopefully things are going to get better. Do you, when, when, when someone dies and it relates to your job, like in the way, late in the 86 World Series in game six, your first thought is, um, okay, I'm going to have to get these players and this blah, blah, blah. When someone dies, when a Brian Cole dies, is your is, is, it, is it the same way? Do you turn out, do you put on your work, you know, blinders and say, okay, this is what I have to do, this is what I have to do? I'm, it's just, how, how could you help the family? What could you do the right thing? You know, how do you... Uh, you know, how could you m make sure his memory is treated the right way? This, so we're going back to the, pre you know, you just try, you know, to reach out like uh, when his John Dean just died. So um, me and another kid friend of his, Sue Lucci, we started a GoFundMe page for, for his family. So it's just trying to reach out, and, you know, there's more personal in his family, much more important than anything that happens on the field. Like in the 86 team, you know, uh, you know, so many of the coaches have died. You know, uh, Gary Carter died at the age of 57. You know, Bill Robinson died. Vern Holscheid died. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm getting extremely close with the with the 69 team, Jeff. You know, we had the 50th anniversary and, and all the guys, you know, you know, Tom Seaver, uh, um, you know, um, Ed Charles, uh, you know, Don Clendenin, you know, uh, Don Cardwell. You know, just got so close, to, you know, to the to the guys and you know, Tug McGraw, and just you know, just that's one thing about my job. I got to know the people as people. You know, the heartaches, the good and the bad. But you know, you you kind of draw up close to the people when there's a death in the family. In my job, I just try to reach out to them and let them whatever you can do from our end. And when when I switch jobs, one of my jobs was to try and bring the former players back into the family. And then way we can do when you know when somebody dies, we do these newsletters, let them know what what happened to their old teammates. And just to, it's it's more than a game; it's a family. And as we, what I was trying to do in my job to reach out to these other people, let them know that we we care. And I'm I consider myself a very caring person, and I just try and do whatever we can for the family. Let me ask you a final question. Sure. Um, 
Give me the best prank a ball player has ever played on you. Oh, that's easy. I could have written the whole book. Uh, my friend Johnny Franco, I mean, we're in the old Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles. So Johnny gets the keys to my room, unscrews a metal horse head from the lobby, goes up to my room, shuts the lights off, puts the horse head on the pillow, puts ketchup on the pillow, puts the horse under the bed. And I go into my room. There's about eight or nine guys outside the door. I thought I had a freaking dead horse in my in my uh, in my bed. I scream. I thought I was gonna have a heart attack. And I hear the guys screaming, laughing outside. That's sort of one of the cleaner things that they did to me. They put uh, dead rats in my work bag, ice cream in my suits, white out on my glasses, cut my ties. You name it, they did it. But again, as Johnny said, they they don't like it. They're not gonna do it. So they must have loved me for a couple of times for a couple of years. Wait, I have a final, final question for you. This is a great question. This is a question you are the perfect person to ask, and it's argued all the time. Are you ready for the question? I'm ready for the question, Jeff. Can a person be a Mets fan and a Yankee fan? No, no, can no freaking way, no way possible. And you can't. Anybody says to me, "Well, I'm a New Yorker. I want the Mets and the Yankees." And I said, "I call BS on it. There's no way possible." <laughs> I don't hate the Yankees, but I used to battle for the front pages and radio stuff. And I, I, I didn't. I'm not root for the Yankees. I mean, I can't, no offense to some good friends. You know, Joe was there and David Cohn. No way you can be. You can't. You can't be a diehard Yankee fan and a diehard man. There's no possible way anybody tells you that is full of BS. Wait, when you see Dwight Gooden throwing a no hitter for the Yankees, it does a little piece of your heart die? You no, know, he absolutely killed me. It absolutely, <laughs> killed me. it absolutely it killed me. And you know, when David Cohn had all the success over there, Darrow and three rings there, I, I could say this that what I was hoping for as a closet Met fan, I was hoping for a way we could have stole DJ LeMayu from the Yankees. That would have made my day. But you know, it didn't work out. He went back. But I, you know, we always gave to them. We, you know, they, they took good and strawberry. Started my Tory. David Cohn went from Mets to the Yankees. But Rafael I mean, Santana. Rafael Santana, exactly. But no, yeah, they can't possibly. It's not hatred, is it? But just can't. I can't. Oh, oh, we don't win. God, I hope the Yankees win 100 games and they win. No way. No way. Well, um, Jays, I, I mean, I'm a huge, huge admirer of yours. My honor to be with you, Jeff. You're an old friend. I want to thank today's guest, Jay Horowitz, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Jay on Twitter at J underscore Horowitz PR and listen to the Amazing Mets Alumni Podcast which Jay hosts on most podcast networks. Also, if you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I literally make zero dollars and zero cents for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>